religion. <laughs> I've used that word the last couple of times we've talked. And I said, if you remember, that our faith, Christianity, is a happy religion. And I had to explain myself then, as I will now, by reminding you of the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness, in our understanding, is an emotion which is somewhat dependent on our circumstances, and so we can't always be happy. And happiness at certain times isn't even appropriate. Whereas joy is always available to us, though because of our sin, we're not always joyful, right? And joy doesn't need to be dependent on circumstances, though, and again, we sometimes allow such things to affect our joy. But we can know joy in the midst of sorrow and persecution and even death, as believers have demonstrated down through the centuries. But it's that word religion that I want to talk about today. And that word grates on some people when they hear it. And I mean good people. I mean Christians who put their trust in Christ. Many of whom have come out of mere religion and into this faith that they love. And they will be quick to tell you that Christianity is not about religion. Rather, they declare to you it is all about relationship. And of course, they're right. Religion has never saved anybody, for God is a, is a relational being who wanted a real connection with human beings. The people that he made, the only thing that he made in all of creation that is in his own image, so that we can know him and love him. Most religions treat God as an object. In our faith, God reveals himself as a person who is reaching out to lost human beings, offering them life and forgiveness and to become a part of his forever family. There are only five times in the entire Bible, and all of them are in the New Testament, by the way, where that word religion is used. Three of them are positive uses referring to our faith. And the other two aren't negative. They are at least neutral and maybe even slightly positive. So it's okay to use that word if we're careful with it because we never want to advance a mere formality where God is reduced to only an idea or an object. But as a general category, it can be helpful to use it. And yet that distinction between religion and relationship is so vital, so beneficial, so powerful that we dare not forget it. And it's important for what we're going to talk about today. Now, we've been talking or we've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, and that's one of the most difficult writings in the Bible, and it's constant refrain of meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It makes you wonder if everything's meaningless. Why bother at all? <laughs> but of course, as we previously saw, that Hebrew word translated in those places as meaningless actually means like a vapor or a passing breeze. The author is telling us that life is short, and without God, it is indeed meaningless. The author, Solomon, uh, knows, wrote these words, and I know I'm repeating myself, but some may not know this, and we need the reminder anyway. Solomon was, with the special exception of Jesus Christ, the wisest man who ever lived. And yet, for all of his wisdom, 
We've noted it before. He did so many foolish things which brought him and those around him a great deal of grief. He's an old man now when he puts pen to paper. And he writes as a man who knows that he missed his turn a long time ago and has a long way to go to make corrections. He writes with the regret of a man who, who, whose life was all but wasted. And you and I aren't as wise as Solomon, but we don't have to repeat his mistakes. We can learn from them, and so in some ways, if we learn, we can be smarter than the wisest man who ever lived. The things we're going to look at today, uh, which Solomon talks about in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, and you can join me there in your Bible if you'd like, or you can follow along on the screen uh, as things come up. But the things written there, might sound an awful lot like religion. And they are in the good sense of that word. But also at a deeper level, they are all about relationship. Solomon begins by talking about people as they're coming to the temple, as they gather for worship. And he tells us that we ought to be thoughtful when we come to God. And he puts it this way in the beginning of verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Solomon is, is telling us we ought to be thoughtful, circumspect, considerate, judicious, not careless, not negligent, not inattentive, but thoughtful as we gather for worship. Now, I, I've had to be in, in traffic court a few times <laughs> because the posted speed limits were incorrect. <laughs> at least they didn't match the speed I was driving at the time. And, and the last time I was there, the judge asked me how I pled, and I, and I admitted that I was guilty, but I went to court looking for mercy, and I told him that. And he chuckled, and he said, well, let's see what I can do for you. And he pulled up my record there on his computer on the desk, and then he laughed out loud. He said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. <laughs> And then he said, I wish I could. You see, I was dressed neatly, nothing fancy, a collared shirt and jeans. I was polite, I, I was respectful, and the judge would have been glad to help me if only there hadn't have been all those other incorrectly marked speed limits. <laughs> Yet it always amazed me that the people who were in that same traffic court for, for offenses worse than mine who slouched and mumbled and looked as though they hadn't had a bath or combed their hair in a fortnight, or, or who were wearing inappropriate clothing. I mean, why would you wear a T-shirt advertising Charlie's Tavern if you're in for a DUI? <laughs> or, or they were combative and argumentative, and they sighed and grumbled and complained the whole time. Do an observer would think that they were trying to rile the judge and get a worse outcome if possible, and that's the way it seemed to me. But that wasn't their intention. They just weren't thoughtful. They didn't guard their steps as they went to court. With a lot of forethought, things might have gotten along a lot better for them. You see, when we come to God, we ought to be thoughtful. We ought to be aware of what we're doing. It's an intentional act on our part this coming to church. And we know when we gather here, we're gathering with other believers. And we believe, because the Bible tells us so, that God meets with us in a special way when we come here. It's not about the building. It's about the church. 
which is God's people gathered with the purpose of worshiping God. And when that happens, God shows up. And Solomon tells us we need to be aware of what we're doing. Now, I don't know if you noticed uh, this morning, but we brought back the countdown clock. (laughs) And we did a couple other things, too, when that clock started that you may not have noticed. We shut the sanctuary doors. Uh, The music changed and became more reflective in tone. Uh, The light was turned on on the cross, right? And all of that was done in in a way, hopefully, to make you aware that soon we'll begin worshiping God. Five minutes before we officially begin, we start that countdown clock, and at the end of that five minutes there about, we begin to praise God in song. In that five minutes, we're encouraging people, it's not a rule, it's not, it's not going to be legalism, we're not going to be legalistic about it, we're not going to look at you cross-eyed if you don't, but we're encouraging you to wind down the conversation, to take your seat, and begin to prepare your heart to meet with God. See, it's a way of guarding your steps of being thoughtful. Now, one thing I know, and now you're going to know it, because I'm going to tell you, and we know this because of people who study these kinds of things have told us it's so, and that is that millennials, you know what I mean by that? Those people born between 1981 and 1996, a relatively unchurched segment of our population. Well, when they do go to church... They look for that space, the room, or the area where worship takes place. They may not know a whole lot about God, but they know instinctively that he's to be approached reverently. So we help them when we provide that space for them. Now, I don't think that we're doing them a disservice at all by visiting with one another before the service. I mean, we know there's so much of a mixture of different things uh, when we're with God. There's the fun stuff and the serious stuff, and, and they need to come with grips with that too. But we also know, don't we, that there's a time to turn our attention from one another toward God. All we want to do is to be purposeful about that space for those who need it. And I think we'll all benefit by it. We're we're not trying to change who we are. We're only trying to bring a little order to it. Solomon tells us to be thoughtful when we approach God. Now, that was the beginning of verse 1, and from there, he addresses our demeanor or our attitude or our comportment and conduct when we are in the actual service. And he tells us that when we are before God, that we should come into God's presence with a teachable heart. Verse 1 again says this, Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. See, God will speak to us. He'll teach us. He'll instruct us if only we'll listen. That tagline on our sign at the end of our driveway says, The God who spoke the worlds into existence still speaks today. We here believe that to you. And if you do, then we ought to come before God with a teachable heart. 
See, my job, Jim's job, when either of us stand up here, is to tell you what God's Word says. It's not to tell you what we think. It's not to tell you what the latest psychological or sociological trends are. We might mention them for some reason, but that's not our job. Our job is to tell you what God's Word says, to explain it, to illustrate it, to clarify it, to put it in the larger context of the Bible, any and all of that and more, so that you can see why it matters. You'll be encouraged to be embracing God's truth in your life. It's a, it's a wonderful and fearful and challenging calling. And if we are to do it effectively, we have to be listening too, right along with you. Our whole life is a pilgrimage just as yours is. And so we come here, we come to God, we should come thoughtfully, and we should come with teachable hearts. Solomon contrasts that heart with the way of the fool. Their religion is empty. It's the sacrifice of fools. It's their religion, but it's void of any relationship. They practice it. They may even practice it faithfully, but the heart's far away. And you know something about what I'm talking about, what this is like if you you attempt to be faithful in reading your Bible every day. You're reading along. You know how this is, right? You're reading along, and you've read several paragraphs, maybe even some pages, and all of a sudden you realize your mind was far away. It was on something else. And, and, and all those words, they went through your head, but they, they didn't resonate in your heart. So you start over, or at least you, you say, I'm going to get my mind back on what I should be doing. That happens to all of us. But for the fool, that's what his or her life it's a way of life. That's what they do. There's never a going back, never a point where, where they realize they're not engaged. The heart's never changed. And God's not done with them yet. He may reach him, but until that happens, their religion is just something they do. It's not a relationship. And maybe they think they earn some merit before God. Maybe they're just trying to keep up appearance, but it never gets below the surface. It never gets into their heart. They don't even understand their true condition, that they're sinners. They ought to, right? I mean, after all, it's a sacrifice that they're offering, but they haven't made that connection. The text says they don't know what they do wrong. I think you should think so, too, that if someone can't be real with themselves, if they don't even understand who or what they are, if they can't be real with themselves, how can they be real with God? Or anyone else, for that matter. How can there be relationship under such conditions? There can't be. It doesn't exist there. Our faith is all about relationship, and the rest is mere religion. Which brings us to a corollary for those who come to God with a teachable heart, and that is we do know we're sinners. We know we need God And that's why we come thoughtfully. That's why we come with teachable hearts. And then we come to that first sentence in verse 2, which is just good general advice. (laughs) So we ought to guard our heart. This is how Solomon puts it. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. Guard your heart. Solomon's concern here, just so you know, it it goes to the inner person. It's not just about the things that he or she says. You see, the mouth reveals the things that are in our heart. 
what Jesus said in Matthew uh, 12 and 34, he says, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And he goes on in the next verse to say, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. The mouth speaks what's in the heart. Now, if you were shipwrecked on an island and a bunch of unmarked barrels washed up on shore, you'd retrieve them naturally, right? But you don't know what's in them, so the first thing you do is you tap them. And when you open that valve, if water comes out, then it's water that's in the barrel. And if it's oil, then it's oil in the barrel. And if it's beer, then it's beer in the barrel. What is in the barrel is coming out of the barrel. And, and what's in our heart is what comes out of our mouth. Solomon isn't just saying here that we shouldn't babble or talk too much. He's telling us to take care of the things that are inside of us. And yet, if you don't like the stuff that's coming out of the barrel, put a plug in it. That won't change stuff in a barrel, I know. But when we try to control the things that come out of our mouth, it does begin changing what's in our heart. Years ago, there was a a theory that was developed into a therapy, and if I remember right, it was nicknamed the scream uh, therapy. (laughs) And the idea behind it was that it's not healthy to bottle up your anger, and so we need to get it out of our system, right? And so people were encouraged to yell and scream and hit things, but it, it didn't quite work according to theory. People didn't get rid of their anger by expressing it. What they discovered is that people had gotten more angry. The therapy did more harm than good. Maybe just maybe you need to kill the anger, not feed it, right? And apparently stifling is how you go about it. I mean, you deal with the anger, but good, honest, productive conversation and confession, but strangle the anger at least before or after. I think you've experienced this yourself. I, I know I have. I know there's times when I've given vent to my anger and nothing good came from it. James says a person's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God requires. I also know those times when I did not give in, those were the times I found victory. That same truth is true with our mouth. Controlling what comes out of it makes a difference in what is in our heart itself. And that's why it's so distressing to me. When Christians and I believe these people are Christians, when they think the use of foul language doesn't matter, it affects the things in their heart. Paul says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that, that it may benefit those who listen. At the very least, that kind of talk doesn't build people up. It doesn't benefit those who hear, and definitely it doesn't do anything positive for your own heart. See, we need to come to God thoughtfully. We need to come to him with teachable hearts, knowing that we're sinners, knowing that we need God. And we need to guard our hearts and our mouths. And Solomon puts all of that into the larger context by reminding us that only God is God and that we're his creatures. The middle of verse 2 says this, God is in heaven and you're on earth, so let your words be few. God is God, we aren't. <laughs> Come to listen. Let what you hear inform your speech because God is higher than we are. Isaiah puts it this way. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is God, and he always knows what's best. Now, if you're down on a valley, and I'm standing up on a high hill, I, I, I can tell you about the things that are in this valley that you can't see because the hill is in the way. But I can also tell you about things in the valley that you're standing in that you can't see because other things obscure them from your sight. God sees it all. And he will tell you what you need to know, when you need to know it, if you're willing to wait and listen. Now, Solomon isn't saying here that we're not to talk at all, that we, that we never are to speak. Uh, he would agree that we ought to pray. But if we pray, we ought to do so believing that God is listening and that God will answer. And so we then, in turn, should listen for him. Prayer can be, if we embrace it, two-way communication. And again, it's not that we should always be silent, but we need to put our talk kind of in the right place. Because in one way or another, God cares about the things we care about. He wants to guide us. Do you know when that's the hardest? <laughs> you know when it's the hardest to be willing to listen to hear God's voice instead of just kind of multiplying our words? It, it's at those times when we feel compelled to pray, when something hard has come into our life and we know there's nowhere else to turn. At times like that, our words proliferate, right? We try to explain to God just what needs to be done. And we think if we pray enough, or hard enough, or long enough, or with enough emotion, or if we can say just the right words, then God will answer us. Solomon says, don't do that. He says it this way in verse 3. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When, when a fool has cares, they talk too much, and we don't want to be like that. Jesus says something similar in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. God is in heaven. He already knows. Multiplying our speech is not what moves God. Now, we have to stop right here. <laughs> we need to bring some balance into this picture right now. I mean, if we were to say no more than this, you might think that God doesn't want to hear anything more from you than the bare facts. Uh, we would reduce relationship to mere religion if we thought that, but that's not what God wants. The Bible tells us to pour our hearts out to God. God wants to share our burdens. He wants to share those things that are in our hearts. Indeed, when we tell him our griefs, he comes alongside of us as a true friend that he is, and he helps us to carry that weight. Pouring out our hearts to God is how we cast our cares on him. But God cannot be manipulated. And when the hard times come, we try to make bargains. At that point, we're no longer pouring our hearts out. We're trying to get our own way. And the next section in today's text, and I'm going to handle in a few moments uh, as a kind of unit, but it's about making vows. And when people find themselves in one of those hard places, often they promise God something. That is, they make a vow. 
The only condition that people place on their vows to God is that God will have to do what they ask. But God cannot be bought. Everything we receive from him is a gift freely given. Everything. Our way in those times seems so important to us. It seems so right to us, especially when it has to do with our children, our loved ones. And I don't intend to be light, make light of any of this. I cannot imagine what it has been like for some of you as you have gone down one of life's hard rows. When I attempt to think about it, I'm overwhelmed. But I do know this. Those who have walked down those kinds of roads will tell you the only way you can navigate those hardships is with God by your side. So, so what have we just said? Well, God knows your heart and your need. And, and he wants to walk with you through the hard times of life. He, he wants you to pray, to pour out your heart to him. He wants you to know that he hears and answers always according to his wisdom and love. He also wants you to trust him. Besides, God can't be bought or bargained with. He's too high. He's too holy. He's too loving for that. We ought to come thoughtfully to God with teachable hearts. We, we ought to guard our hearts always. Because our God is a consuming fire. We've already noted that Solomon's thoughts turn to the next thing that he writes about, which is vows. And, and I suppose as long as there have been people, there have been people making promises to God. And some of those people have even kept those vows. <laughs> uh, in verses 4 through 6, Solomon talks about them. But they don't apply to us as directly as the things we've been talking to up to this point because vows are more a part of the Old Testament ethos than the New Testament life. Now, now I have that on pretty good authority. <laughs> Jesus says so. In Matthew 5, 33 and 35, again, I have heard it said, Jesus is talking here in Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said that people long ago do not break your oath but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Solomon gives us a pretty good idea of the Old Testament teaching on vows in verses 4 through 6. When you, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to make a vow than when you make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? You see, vows in the Old Testament were a serious thing. But they are in the New Testament, too, because we're not supposed to make them. And yet, even in the Old Testament, you can look it up for yourself later, in Leviticus chapter 5, God offered forgiveness for not keeping a vow. And vows are very much a part of Old Testament life, just as temple worship was. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute, but my guess is that right now, uh, some of you are going to be a little distracted. You're wondering whether a person should make vows on their wedding day. 
or if, uh, if you should take an oath when you give testimony in court. And maybe you're already aware of the fact that some Christians, when they take the witness stand, refuse to swear. Instead, they affirm that they will tell the truth. I've done that myself. But I think there's a difference between those things and the kind of vow Solomon was talking about or Jesus was talking about. See, the promises people made in the Old Testament were made to God. Now, wedding vows are made before God, but they're made to our intended. That's not the same thing. And I'm not just splitting hairs. This is a legitimate and valid distinction. Jesus doesn't seem to be forbidding us to make any promises, just those sworn to God. You see, God is in heaven, and we're on earth. I tell God all the time that I want to live for him, and then I ask him for help. That's something much different than swearing to him that I'm going to live the Christian life. That kind of thing, to me anyway, seems arrogant. You remember Peter? He spoke some pretty bold words on the night that Jesus was betrayed. But when the rooster crowed, he realized how badly he failed. When it comes to oaths and courts, it's, a, it's a, not a little less clear. I mean, when you say, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, what you're promising then depends on what you mean by that phrase, so help me, God. If you're asking God to help you, aid you, come to your aid, as you speak, then, then you're making your promise to the court. But if you mean by that you're making a promise to God, or if you're saying that God is guaranteeing your speech, that's a different thing. Promises to other people or institution are not the same things as vows made to God. I don't know how many of you were wondering about that, thinking about it, but that question has come to me so many times, and I felt like if I didn't answer it, that's going to lose you. We're coming back to the point now. Vows are a part of the Old Testament ethos, not New Testament life. Since the resurrection, everything is different. Our scripture reading makes that abundantly clear, doesn't it? When we started out with it, uh, the Old Testament, God touched the mountain and it trembled and smoked. When we've come to a joyful assembly, to the heavenly Jerusalem, we have come to the gathering of those whose names have been written in heaven. The temple and the law were necessary in the Old Testament times. They kept the people moving in the right direction like the bumpers on a kitty car ride which guide that tiny little car in the desired course. But since the resurrection, we have something greater and better than the temple. We have the Holy Spirit living us. In fact, we are the temple. And vows made to God are just not for us. Now, we can take what Solomon's teaching on them pretty uh, simply and straightforward and apply them in a different way without a lot of explanation. We can translate Solomon's in explanation, uh, instructions in verses 4 through 6 into the language of our day, into our day, the way that we can apply it. And that is we ought to be serious and intentional as we live our life for God. That's what keeping vows were all about in the Old Testament. It was being serious and intentional about living out their faith. Our God is a consuming fire. Which brings us to the end of the passage and Solomon's final thoughts. 
which maybe we could state them this way and then briefly explain. Put God first. Verse 7, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. And if you haven't caught it before, dreams uh, come from worries and cares, and those things tend to cause us to multiply our words. But both the cares and the words they produce are but a vapor, a passing breeze. God, though, is forever. So Solomon goes on to say at the end of verse 7, therefore fear God. Fear didn't end with the first covenant. It's still with us in the New Testament, but there is more awe and less terror in it, all because of the cross. So we can say, I think, and it's helpful to say this, put God first. Put him ahead of your worries. Put him ahead of your fears. Put him ahead of your hopes. Put him ahead of your loves. Put him ahead of your own life. For God is great. And he is holy, but he is also good, and he is loving. God is in heaven, and we are on earth, and we, he is making everything new, and he has already prepared our place with him. So while we're here on this earth, we need to come to God thoughtfully, with teachable hearts, knowing we're sinners, knowing we need God. We're to guard our hearts and our mouth. God knows your heart, your need. He wants to walk with you through the hard times. He wants you to pray and pour out your heart to him. He wants you to know that he hears and he answers always according to his wisdom and love and so he wants you to trust him. God can't be bought. He can't be bargained with. So we should put him first as we endeavor to live our lives earnestly and honestly. And none of that is mere religion. All of that is about relationship. Without God, Solomon has told us, life is only a passing breeze. Without God, everything is meaning. But with him is life and hope and joy and love and friendship and forgiveness and every good thing. Would you pray for me? Uh, Father, thank you for um, your grace to us and your goodness to us. Thank you that, um, that sin had separated us, but you made a way. You're the one who justifies, and you are the justifier. You sent your son to pay for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be brought into your family. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, for your continued faithfulness to us. And guide us as we leave here that we would honor you and we would take the message of our Savior to the people around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.